Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Eric Yarbrough, author of the new book, Transgender Mental Health, published in 2018 by American Psychiatric Association. Eric Yarbrough is Director of Psychiatry at Callan Lord Community Health Center in New York and President of AGLP, the Association of LGBTQ Psychiatrists. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Sure. As a way of starting, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Uh, yeah, I, um, I went to medical school at the University of Alabama. That's where I grew up and was raised. And for residency, I came to New York City. I worked at a, a hospital system called St. Luke's Roosevelt, and I spent four years of residency there. And afterward, I worked for a couple of years before moving on to Callan Lord, which is a LGBTQ community health center located in Chelsea in Manhattan. And what do you do at Callan Lord? Well, there I function as director of psychiatry, which means that the majority of my work is administrative. I oversee the basically the clinical programming of the clinic and deciding what kind of patients we're going to be able to treat, what kind of therapies and medications we use. And it's my job to supervise all the psychiatric practitioners. So for those people who are not familiar, what exactly is Callan Lord? So Callan Lord is a community health center, which means that it works in a nonprofit fashion and it accepts public insurances. It treats people that are LGBTQ identified, although we do have some straight patients too. It's a pretty large system located in four different sites right now. And we have about 17,000 patients a year visits. And even in the mental health department, we have about two to 3,000 visits a year. And the, I guess the population is mostly gay men. So that's about 50% of our population. And then the next largest population would be transgender identified people. And we have about 4,000 trans identified people in the clinic. So how long have you been working there now? I'm going on six years, actually. Wow. So because we're going to be talking about transgender mental health and all things gender, I thought our listeners might want to know what your gender identity is. Yeah, so I was assigned male at birth, and I identify as male. That makes me a cis male, so CIS is the term. Okay. And how did you become interested in and involved in transgender mental health, the topic of your book? No, it's quite interesting, and uh, residents ask me this question all the time. When I was working at St. Luke's Roosevelt, there were some trans-identified patients in our outpatient clinic, and a lot of the staff there were a little bit I got scared working with them, and I wasn't for whatever reason. 
And so I started taking them on and seeing them. And in that process, they would go to Cal and Lord to get their hormone treatments. And so I got to know the staff at Cal and Lord, and I just kind of became the de facto trans psychiatrist at St. Luke's Roosevelt. And just talking to the patients and reading up on things over time, you just kind of become an expert. And that's, that's how it happened for me. But how ready did you, or how competent at that time, did you feel to be not just treating this population, but to take on the identity on the staff as the trans uh, mental health person? I was in a fortunate place because I'd already part, or I'd already joined AGLP. So that's the Association of LGBTQ Psychiatrists. And so I had a lot of mentors I could reach out to, people that had been working with trans-identified patients for years. And I would call them and ask them questions about what to do. And they taught me along the way. So the book is called Transgender Mental Health, and it's pretty comprehensive. I think it covers everything that anyone might want to know about any and all things related to transgender mental health. What made you write this book? Well, it wasn't even my idea, oddly enough. I am one of my colleagues is Petrus Livonis, who's in AGLP. He also is the chair of psychiatry at Rutgers. And he asked me to come give a presentation at Rutgers. It was an all-day presentation about trans mental health. And after that, we met at the annual convention, and he introduced me to the APA publishing and said, you know, Eric is already giving presentations about this topic. There's no book in the APA associated with it, and he might be the person to write it. And it didn't dawn on me that you know, that was probably correct. So uh, that's, that's how it came about. How did you feel when you were first approached to to take on this task? I, I mean, it was daunting at first because the the hardest part for me was just making sure I went through and did all the research. So reading any major article I could find about transgender mental health over the past 50 years, which, you know, there aren't that many. There are more and more as the years go by, and it's kind of uh, skyrocketing in a way in the past five years. But I wanted to make sure I reviewed everything that was out there so I could provide, I guess the best way to put it, uh, academic type support. Mm -hmm. I wanted there to be evidence behind what I was saying. And that took the first six months of my uh, working on the book, just doing the research. And I wonder also what it felt like to be writing such a comprehensive book on such an important topic like transgender mental health when you're not trans yourself. Yeah, that, that, that of course, uh, that people have asked me that question too. It's, you know, I, as a gay man, which I identify as, I work with gay men in psychotherapy and therefore I'm a kind of an LGBTQ affirming psychiatrist. And that's part of my identity. There are people that don't identify as gay that work with gay people that I'm sure do great jobs and they understand what goes into gay affirming treatments. So I think that just my history of seeing so many patients at Cal and Lord and interacting with so many different people, that's what put me in a good place. Now, as far as personal experience, I even put that in the introduction. I don't have any personal experience identifying as transgender. I do have a lot of people in my life who do that I've heard stories from, and they're in ways intertwined in the book. And who is the audience for this book? The audience, I think, is really any mental health professional. So not just psychiatrists, but psychologists, social workers, counselors. I'm hoping even like pastoral type counselors would read it. And I also wrote it, though, in a way that 
the language, doesn't use any jargon. So I was hoping it would be accessible to anybody. So parents, teachers, um, people that identify as trans themselves. And it provides kind of a basic overview and information that isn't too heady and is, isn't hard to digest. So, so let's get right into some of the key concepts in the book and start at the beginning, really. By your definition, what is transgender? Well, transgender is actually kind of a, some, a subset of an umbrella term. Uh, the gender diverse is the best way to think about it. And gender diverse is a wording that I use a lot in the book. So people that are gender diverse don't fall into the typical social norms of what we call in male and female in a, a dichotomous way of thinking. Transgender people, that term developed early in the 70s, are people who are assigned a sex at birth, but then identify as a different gender. So they might be assigned female at birth and identify as male, but then there's a whole rainbow of other options available to them, including things like gender non-binary, gender non-conforming. You can be both genders or neither gender, agender. So transgender kind of is used as a term to describe all those different types of people. And... Yeah, it doesn't really communicate how diverse it is. Right. So I I think this is an important point for people who are new to this to understand that of gender diverse people, only a portion of them wish to go from one sex to the other, so to speak. And in the book, you introduce an acronym, TGNC. What is that, that, that I think covers this umbrella? What does TGNC stand for exactly? It stands for transgender and gender nonconforming. And what does gender nonconforming mean? So it it really is a challenge to cultural phenomenon or cultural, uh, the way society is set up, what is male and what is female. Thinking about what it is to be a man and what it is to be a a woman. As we move along in time, people are less and less likely to identify with those types of uh, characteristics. So I think over time, gender is starting to become a little bit more androgynous and blending. So gender non-conforming people don't necessarily want to fit into a box of male or female. Where, where do you think that trends in language and in describing and understanding gender are taking us? Like, do you think, what do you think is happening to the concept of what it means to be gender conforming? I I actually am excited about it. I think it's the same thing that's been happening with sexual orientation over the past, you know, 50, 100 years. When Kinsey set out to write his book about the sexual orientation of the male and how there's a spectrum of ways in which people can present, the same thing can be said for gender. So each of us have masculine traits and feminine traits, and those have usually been defined uh, by society. So it doesn't necessarily mean that... uh, if someone's acting male, they're masculine. And we can each look at ourselves and try to decide how we identify as far as our traits. And I think it's giving people more freedom to look at themselves and not necessarily fall into boxes. So over time, I do think it's going to have an impact on how we think of male and female in society. So one of the issues that your book covers is the importance of transgender people being able to find clinicians and medical professionals that are competent, that know what they're doing in 
in working with them. Can anyone work with a TGNC person potentially? Um, what, what does it take to be competent in this area? That's a, that's a good question. And that's something that you get different answers depending on who you'd ask. But I'm glad you asked it because I do think there are a lot of people that could be TGNC competent and it doesn't take too much work. It's more about the internal work inside the mind. So clinicians that work with trans-identified people need to understand some basic concepts, things like the gender spectrum, that there's not just male and female, but there's various ways of presenting. Knowing a little bit about using pronouns, how to respect people and use the pronouns that they would like to be used, the name they would like to be used. And then it goes a little bit further into knowing things about uh, writing letters for gender-affirming procedures, understanding how hormones affect people over time. I think that the majority of mental health clinicians, if they understand those basic concepts, they would be on some level TGNC competent. And the hope for the book was to educate people so that there would be more access to care because I think there are so few clinicians that feel uncomfortable with this or feel comfortable with this subject matter. You know, as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking about what you said regarding doing your medical training in Alabama and then eventually coming to New York. And it makes me wonder if you think that the competence and the, and the, the kind of thinking that's required for someone to be competent in this area is something that you only find in a place like New York. If, if you ever go back to, if you know anything about your hometown and whether there are more professionals who are used to work that could call themselves competent in this area. You know, funny enough, there are, I've been looking, um, I went to medical school in Birmingham and they have a clinic now from what I understand who I'm trying to connect with that, provides care for TGNC people. And, you know, I don't think that being in a, a large urban area is a requirement. I think it's just having access to number one, information, and then number two, some sort of supervisor. So people that can guide you or answer questions if you have any along the way. It, it's my experience that sometimes even the most well-meaning and, you know, progressive, open-minded therapists and clinicians can still have misconceptions about the TGNC experience. Do you know any of the common misconceptions that such well-meaning professionals have about TGNC people? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten all kinds of different answers for that. Sometimes I've talked to psychiatrists that think uh, TGNC people are mentally ill and that it's a delusion that they're not the other gender and that this is something that can be cured with medication or changed with therapy, conversion therapy. There are people that think um, that it's just, so like a trans woman, for instance, someone that was assigned male at birth but identifies as female, people might think, oh, it's just someone who's gay, and that's their level of gayness or that's their level of femininity, and that's, that's who they are as transgender. That's what that means. It's just like a really gay person which it's not, but uh, there are those concept misconceptions out there and they still exist even in New York City. When people come to work at Callan Lord, do you ever find, do you ever witness them having growth experiences, even certain maybe cultural clashes or, or challenging experiences where they learn something that they didn't realize before coming to work at Callan Lord? Oh yeah, um, most of our providers that we hire, 
they tend to have some sort of background in working with transgender people, but not all of them are experts, of course. They're usually associated with the LGBTQ community in some way. But despite their background, we still go through a formal training process and they have to um, go to different lectures that we provide at Cal and Lord, take different tests that we provide. And we try to make sure everybody's on the same playing field when they're seeing patients. And how how does a TGNC person find a competent therapist or 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 doctor? That's a difficult question. Um, there are websites that have uh, referral sources for people. So one off the top of my head is Manhattan Alternative, and it's a New York based website that lists TGNC competent providers, meaning a therapist and psychiatrist that people can go to. There are also another, there's another website called The Lighthouse that is offering those types of connections. But before it was really just word of mouth. The community could communicate with each other and direct people in, in different ways. And only now with the internet and people making websites can people actually go and search for clinicians that, that fall in that category. I want to move on to another issue that you address in the book, which is that of advocacy. And I'm wondering what makes someone an advocate? Well, you can be an advocate in multiple types of ways. Uh, one way to be an advocate is just to identify as a transgender affirming therapist and treat people with respect when they come to your office. And that's the very basic level of being an advocate. Now, it, it typically goes a step further so that for me, when I'm working with patients, for instance, and if they go to an emergency room or go to a hospital, taking the time out to educate the clinician you're speaking with, if they're not competent in the area about how to address the person and also not to, I guess, make common mistakes that inpatient doctors tend to do. And I'll give you a, for instance, a lot of trans men take testosterone, hormone therapy, and frequently they get admitted for psychiatric reasons. So they might be psychotic or manic or depressed. And the doctors in the hospital jump to the testosterone as the cause instead of thinking, you know, this is someone that we should treat like everybody else. They see testosterone as a medication and they blame that for their symptoms. Hmm. So that, that's one way to advocate for patients is to educate those clinicians about, about what testosterone is and what it does and what it doesn't do. And then uh, the third level is working with insurance companies. So advocating with insurance companies to get patients access to gender affirming procedures. Mental health professionals are required to write letters of support, meaning that the person is, uh, has the capacity to decide to have any gender affirming surgeries. And there are so few clinicians that do that right now. Um, my hope was to increase the number of those through the book. I wanted to get your opinion on writing letters like that, because I've always felt that those letters sometimes put the therapist in a position of a conflict of interest, because it seems at times like the the hospital is asking the therapist to perform an evaluative function on behalf of the hospital to kind of uh, take on the responsibility for the hospital of making sure that this procedure is okay, whatever whatever that even means. And I, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but 
I sometimes feel like it's weird. Like they're, they're asking me to look out for their interests. Maybe instead of the patients, um, how do you see it? I think that that's definitely a part of it. It's complicated and this is an area that's evolving. So I do think it'll change over time. But letter writing is not about identifying a patient to be transgender or not. And I think a lot of surgeons and hospitals think that it is. Mm. Mental health professionals are supposed to identify if the person has capacity to decide to have surgery. That means they understand what the risk and benefits of the surgery are. Do they understand what the follow-up care is? So your job as, as a therapist or a psychiatrist is not to identify necessarily whether or not the person is transgender. That diagnosis is actually pretty easy to make anyway. It's gender dysphoria in the DSM-5. And if you ever look at their criteria, they're quite easy for people to meet if they are gender diverse. And you only, necess- you only necessarily have to have six months of those symptoms to meet the criteria for gender dysphoria. That being said, it gets more complicated because there are people that don't have gender dysphoric symptoms necessarily, but they still would like certain surgical procedures. And your job as a mental health professional is to kind of work with them and figure out how to help them get what they need. So there's a lot packed into what you just touched on, and I want to break it down one by one because one piece involved in what you're talking about is diagnosis. And I want to talk about that for those of our listeners who aren't really familiar with the diagnoses involved in transgender mental health. You mentioned gender dysphoria. What exactly is gender dysphoria and how do you diagnose it? Gender dysphoria is a term that's evolved over time. It used to be called um, transsexualism back in the day, and uh, then it was gender identity disorder for a while. And recently with DSM-5, it was changed to gender dysphoria, which means that people are assigned a certain sex at birth, and there might be things about that that they're uncomfortable with or having symptoms from. So they might not like certain parts of their body. They might not like being referred to as male or female. They might not like um, the pronouns that people use with them. And the gender dysphoria section of the DSM really is kind of simplistic. It, it thinks from a dichotomous way. So someone, you know, identify or assigned female at birth wants to identify as a male that makes them gender dysphoric. It's a lot more complicated than that, though. Gender dysphoria can mean all kinds of different things. It just means that people necessarily aren't comfortable in their bodies or in their identities, and they want to be referred to or look like something else. And that's a very crude way of putting it, but it it would cover most patients that are seeking treatment. I think that some people who are not familiar with what it's like to be a trans person might not might hear that and think, well, so you don't feel comfortable in your body. So many people don't feel comfortable in their body. Why does that necessitate something so drastic as transitioning, which the details of which we'll get into later, but could you explain what it feels like for a trans person to, to be in the wrong body? What, and, and what makes it so urgent and at some points, even um, a life or death issue for them to be able to transition to a gender affirming body. Yeah, gender is something that's so 
automatic. And I think it's something that's used so many times a day that people just don't realize how often they're referred to by a certain name, by a certain pronoun, you know, how often they're called sir or ma'am, how they look in the clothing that they put on and how they're uh, categorized based on that. So I think that for someone who's not transgender identified, it might be hard for them to wrap their mind around it. But if there was a way for you to count in your head every time you got referred to as a certain gender throughout the day, you might start to realize how it how it's affecting them. And I mean, for instance, I again, I identify as a gay man and gay people have to come out of the closet on a regular basis through most of their lives, even after they identified as gay to their family or friends. I might meet someone at a conference, for instance, and they ask about, you know, are you married? How's your wife? And I have to out myself as gay at that point. Transgender people have to out themselves even more so all the time if they're going to be called by the name they want to be called or the the pronoun they want to be called. So society might automatically assign them certain things and they have to go and correct it in order to feel comfortable. Now, people who go through hormone therapy or even surgical uh, therapy, they usually end up much happier because society starts to automatically assume that they're a certain gender and it's the one they identify as. And that's really where the therapy comes in handy and it helps people live better lives as they start to feel more comfortable with their bodies and themselves just based on how society is reacting to them. I want to go back to the issue of diagnosis, which you point out is often a necessary step on the way to getting the kind of treatment and at times surgery that a person needs. But I'm wondering what, if you have an opinion on the use of that diagnosis, if you think that it sometimes helps or can sometimes hurt a TGNC person to receive that diagnosis. The diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Of gender dysphoria, correct. Yeah, I think it. I think it definitely hurt. Um, I usually talk with patients before I put that diagnosis on a piece of paper. They usually understand it's a means to an end that this is what's necessarily for insurance companies in order to pay for hormones or procedures. They need to understand that it's not a disorder, that it's not a mental illness per se, that it's not something that you think needs to be corrected or fixed. And I do think that people should have those conversations with patients regularly. So it it really depends. Some people don't really mind so much and others do. And it's just about having a conversation with your patient about it. We have to address the insurance companies as well, because for, for better or worse, they've become intimately involved in mental health treatment for any kind of condition. And I'm wondering in your experience dealing with insurance companies, Where in general do you think that they're at in terms of their understanding this issue and understanding the needs of these patients? I think they're uh, way, way back at the beginning. So a lot of people that are in insurance companies, clinicians even, that decide policies and procedures about what treatments they will pay for and allow that's evolving over time too. And it's only been in really in the past year or two that public insurances have started paying for gender affirming procedures. Now, a lot of education needs to be done on the part of 
uh, the clinicians to teach the insurance companies about what's necessary or not necessary. And then there's all kinds of politics get wrapped up in it. So it, even though the medical literature might say that these treatments tend to help people live better lives and are happier, if someone doesn't agree with it from a moral standpoint, for instance, and they happen to be in a place of power on an insurance company, they can decide that they're not going to provide that service. So eventually some sort of laws will need to be passed. In New York, of course, we have our own laws that were passed that mandate insurance companies to provide treatment options for trans-identified people, but it's definitely not like that in other places. So a lot of work still needs to be done. But you cited that, or you mentioned that person might cite moral reasons for denying uh, services. Have you have you had that experience where someone on an insurance panel has denied services on on the ground on some sort of moral or religious grounds? They haven't made it that explicit, but I've had conversations with uh, medical directors of insurance companies and tried to nail down with them why they were denying a procedure. And when I really put them in a corner to explain why, it was usually because they thought trans people are mentally ill and they don't need to be having surgery. So that is a, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's a personal opinion. And wherever they get that personal opinion, um, it could be from moral reasons, ethical reasons, who knows. But it's definitely not based on evidence-based treatments. So since we're talking about services and and treatments, what exactly does it mean for a person to transition? A transition is commonly um, not really, it's misunderstood. That's the way I'll put it. Transition doesn't necessarily mean going from one gender to another. That's the way it's classically thought of. So people transitioning from male to female, for instance. But transition really isn't a one-way street. It doesn't go in one direction, and it can branch off in all kinds of different ways. So some people might decide they just want to go by a different pronoun. Some people might decide they want to just have hormones. And some people might decide not to do anything. If they're comfortable in the bodies the way they are, they would just like to be referred to as the uh, gender they identify as. So transition can mean all kinds of different things. I I do think that the majority of clinicians imagine transition is going from one gender to another, though. And frequently it might mean that, but it doesn't necessarily have to. You're suggesting when you say that most clinicians think a transition is going from one gender to the other, that you're implying that they think of that as including or, or, or meaning some kind of surgery? Yeah, hormone surgery, which neither are required. Um, neither not not everybody wants surgery. Not everybody wants hormones. Some people might have hormones for a while and decide they don't want to take them anymore. So transition may or may not include any of those things. So it could include a person who simply wants to start living as maybe the opposite gender or some other gender identity other than the one they were assigned at birth. And do it in such a way that doesn't involve any kind of medical treatment and is more about lifestyle changes? Exactly. And that's kind of the essence, I think, of gender-affirming treatment from a therapist's point of view. It's understanding that there's that variety out there. And 
not necessarily leading a patient down a path to transition, but talking with the patient and the two of you to, together discovering what it means and what it means for them and who they would like to be. So what is it like psychologically? What is it that, uh, what are some of the thought processes that a person goes through who is considering transitioning? In other words, how does a person even come to realize that that's what they need to do? Does it start with an inkling? Does it start with, um, gender nonconforming behaviors? It's, it varies. It depends on the person. Some people know from the get go. So as soon as they understand what boy and girl means, they understand that they identify differently from other people. So some people have told me stories where they knew at three or four years old, yeah, they kept calling me boy, but I knew I was a girl. And but there's other people that it doesn't necessarily come to, it doesn't, I guess they don't come to that realization until later on in their lives. So some people might discover it around um, puberty when their body starts to change. Some people might discover it a little bit later on um, after they've had a time to kind of figure themselves out. And some people don't discover it even until their 50s, 60s, or 70s because they've been so repressed or because they've been so isolated from gender diverse people that they didn't really know it was an option for them. And the, really, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was really having access to other gender diverse people or having access to information. Some people don't realize it and it dawns on them when they hear someone else's story or read something, they're like, oh, that, that, that's exactly how I've been feeling. And it makes sense to me. So that's, that's another way it happens. I'm thinking of the show Transparent on Amazon, which depicts uh, a trans woman, I think in her, I think late 60s, I'm not, I'm not sure if early 70s, who similarly realizes much later in life that she is a woman, although she's lived the vast majority of her life as a man and shows what she goes through. But you're also saying that some people discover this as early as puberty. And I'm wondering if you could say more about what, what happens in puberty that might get a person thinking more consciously about the possibility of needing to be a different gender. One example might be trans men. So people that assign female at birth, but identify as male you got to think about what happens at puberty. They start to develop breasts. And for a trans man, that particular change could be very disturbing. And they might end up doing things like wearing tight clothes or commonly uh, binders are commonly used and to help them maintain a flat chest. And they don't like the feeling of breast growth. So that's something they wouldn't come to understand until their body starts to change in puberty. And that's just one of many examples. Our bodies go through so many changes in puberty. And when those hormones start kind of pumping out, that's when all those characteristics change and people start to look classically more male or female the way society sees them. So puberty is kind of a time a lot of people start to, to feel dysphoric about their bodies. So in situations, though, when a trans person has been living as the opposite gender or a different gender for some time and wants to go to the next level and proceed 
to hormone treatment and maybe even medical treatment. I'm wondering what is a therapist's role when working with someone during this part of the transition? Well, I think the main role for a therapist is to, number one, do an evaluation. So make sure there aren't other psychiatric problems that need to be addressed, like depression, anxiety, panic, uh, even the more serious ones like schizophrenia or bipolar. So your job is to, number one, treat them as if you treat anybody else. But if gender diversity seems to be part of their presentation in some way based on what they tell you, then it's about exploration. So number one, do they understand what options are available to them? Do they understand that gender diversity is not a mental illness? Those types of things. A lot of people have internalized transphobia, and that's a concept that's similar to internalized homophobia. So they hear negative things from media, uh, from even their churches or their communities about what it means to be transgender. And so they internalize those thoughts and they can affect their livelihoods. And as clinicians, we have to go back and discuss those topics with patients and make sure they understand and no, it's not a mental illness, and you are perfectly allowed to be whoever you want to be. But when you say, though, that the therapist's role includes assessing whether there are other issues involved, I'm not sure if the implication is that if there are other issues involved, that that might then constitute a reason to pause the transition. Yeah, I, I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is a lot of people might meet a trans-identified person and they focus on that as what they need to be working on. And they might miss other major things that need treatment. Not that they're necessarily related, but it, I think it's our job as clinicians to make sure the person's getting the same treatment that you would provide anybody else. Now, there are some conditions, I think, that would make me pause and probably lengthen the process, if someone for uh, wanted to start hormones, for example, or have surgery, if they were in a position where they were not able to take care of themselves, meaning they were homeless, didn't have access to you know, housing, someone that has surgery can't take care of themselves and their, their wounds after surgery if they're homeless. So those types of things need to be attended to. Someone that is psychotic, for instance, a lot of people have psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, and it, they might have them their whole lives. It may or may not affect how they view their gender identity. They might have hallucinations that have nothing to do with gender identity, and so the person is still able to move forward and have any type of procedure or hormones they want. It gets kind of complicated, and it's really just about teasing those things apart and understanding that the gender diversity, it, it could be affected by other things, so I'll even go further into this. Someone who's young and comes out as trans and is kicked out of their house, ends up homeless, doesn't know who to turn to. They might end up doing something like sex work in order to make money because nobody else will hire them. That could lead to things like depression and anxiety. It could lead to suicidal ideation or even suicide attempts. And so clinicians need to address those illnesses, in addition to making sure they're providing gender-affirming care. You mentioned depression and anxiety as possible co-occurring conditions uh, 
in someone who's also presenting with gender dysphoria. Do you think there are ever situations, though, where a person's depression, even maybe their long-standing depression, would best be treated by transitioning, by by undergoing surgery? Absolutely, 100%, yes. Um, I think that's the kind of the key of the dysphoric part. I think that there's a lot of symptoms that are relieved by helping someone transition. And, you know, I, I, I just had an experience with a patient a few weeks ago where they were coming into my office and they were telling me how happy they were that when they get on a train or a plane now, people refer to them as ma'am instead of sir. And that experience alone is so validating for them. And they were so happy to hear those things. And that's just one small example. So there are a lot of things like depression and anxiety that if the person gets in a gender affirming place, meaning that they're surrounded by supportive people that validate their gender identity, then a lot of those symptoms could go away. But it, but I wonder if you ever encounter the idea, and if this is perhaps a misconception among some therapists, that if a person presents with other conditions, well, that those somehow constitute disqualifiers for transitioning and that you got to address the depression before allowing the person to proceed as if the depression might not be in some ways explained by the gender dysphoria. Yeah, no, they can, they can happen concurrently and the person's going to proceed either way, no matter what you do. So putting up a, some sort of barrier saying, I don't think you need to start hormones yet. It doesn't mean that they can't go get hormones from the street, for instance. So you have to kind of work with both at the same time. I'm thinking of an example of like someone who shows up in my office depressed, but identifies as transgender and wants help with treatment. You know, if the person's suicidal, for instance, you're going to have to treat that. So it gets, I guess it gets complicated on a clinical level and also kind of feeling the person out to see where that depression might be coming from. That kind of stuff should usually pop up in an evaluation too, based on family history and social history and just past psychiatric history. So the, the, the main answer would be no, having any of those diagnoses wouldn't disqualify someone from proceeding with any sort of transition. And the therapist just need to be, they need to be open to that. I'm thinking about the families of TGNC people, which you also address in the book, and wondering how you think that TGNC people should deal with, say, parents that don't support their decision to transition. How should the the patient deal with it or the clinician? Well, I was wondering how the patient, how you advise your patients to deal with it and how you work with that in therapy. I was also wondering if you ever deal directly with families also. I absolutely deal with families quite often. They can be difficult. Uh, patients, I offer, I offer to all my patients, if they have family members that are not accepting, I say, would you like me to speak with them with you in the room? Would you like me to provide the information I know about what it means to be transgender to your family members? And sometimes they want that and sometimes they don't. There are certain family members that are just going to be completely resistant to any sort of gender diversity for whatever reason. And I hate to say it, sometimes it's better for the patient to distance themselves from the family. 
until they get in a more comfortable place, until they're more secure about who they are. Because families can have a powerful, it can be, I guess, a powerful persuasive quality over their children or even their parents or their siblings about who they think their gender identity is. So, yeah. But, but I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, I was done. I, w- I was wondering what you do, though, when when parents or family members are the gatekeepers to treatment, maybe because they're the holders of the insurance policy or maybe because the client is underage or maybe the client is 18 or 19 but still relies on, on the family for financial support, other kinds of support. I wonder how you navigate that. We've had to have patients taken off their parents' insurance and go to public insurance in order to get access to treatments. That's something that sadly happens a lot. If they're under the age of 18, it gets a lot more complicated because technically they'd have to be emancipated in order to get access to those things. It really involves bringing in the family, though, and helping them get on board when the person's a minor. When they're adult and they can separate from the parents as far as paperwork goes and bureaucracy, uh, that's that's something that we have to do. As a psychoanalyst, I can't help but wonder what it's like for you, though, especially when you're dealing with patients who are so young. And I consider 18, 19 to still be pretty young. They're, they're transferentially, it's. It, I wonder if it seems or if it feels like in some ways you're taking on a parental role, d- different from the role that the parent, that the actual parents are taking, um, in in advocating for for the client to do this. You're going to get me in a, a philosophical discussion now. I, <laughs> the way I, I view it, I mean, I'm kind of a, I like uh, Winnicott a lot, so the idea of you know, the good enough mother and being that person for your patient. I don't want to necessarily say it's a parental role, but it's definitely a supportive role. And you're in a position where you can help make changes in people's lives. And taking on that role is part of what it means to be an advocate. You don't, I guess you have to manage the transference and counter-transference and try to be aware where the boundaries should be and and where they lie and it, it gets muddy and it's not so clear for everybody. But there are definitely people that I try to function as a supportive role in their lives and some might say that's a parental role. So we're almost running out of time, but before we go, I want to know what it is that you're working on now? What's coming next for you? There's actually a few things. The annual American Psychiatric Association convention is coming up in May, so just a month away. And there are several presentations about gender diversity and gender dysphoria. And I'll be part of some of those presentations. And I'm actually starting another book uh, with the APA that I'll be working on this fall. It's on a different topic altogether. It's about training residents to become psychiatrists. And it focuses on the emotional toll and kind of the self-awareness that's required to be in a position of being a psychiatrist. I, I find that interesting. You're writing a second book, given that you said the first one sort of came about by someone requesting you 
to do it. Is it the case, and I, I talk to authors about this sometimes, is it the case that once you write the first book, it becomes a lot more, a lot easier and imaginable to write a second and third book? That's that's 100% true. Now that I've done one book, I kind of understand how the process worked for me and how I could make it flow. And once you have that in your brain, that structure in place, it's a lot easier to do it again. Also, you mentioned the upcoming conference at which you'll be speaking. How do people get more information about that if they want to attend? They could go to the APA website. It's www.psych.org. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that information. Eric, and thank you for coming on the show. This has been a really great conversation. And the book is really great for anybody, like you said, professionals or non-professionals who wants to understand more about transgender mental health. There's a lot that we didn't get to, but you sure do a, a very thorough job of explaining everything that someone might want to know about this kind of human experience. So thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about it. No, no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to. And I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com and click on contact. Until next time, have a great week.